Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. After reading former Vicpol Detective Inspector Wayne Snapper Rotherham's CV, it's hard to know where to begin. Snapper started in uniform and was hospitalised three times in three months. He shot and wounded a guy and was forced to mind him in hospital. He was in charge of an extradition to London as a detective, worked in the major crime squad on Russell Street and the Turkish consulate bombings, and Mad Max. He uncovered corruption in the job. At one stage, a druggie even broke into his home and threatened his family. Snapper also did a stint in the Solomon Islands, Cambodia, Bangladesh and Samoa. He was an officer in charge of DTS and more recently has turned his hand to guiding people through the rigours of the Kokoda track. Hi Snapper and welcome to The Crime Couch. Good afternoon Rochelle, thank you. First things first, how did you get your fabulous nickname? Do you know Rochelle, I was hoping you wouldn't start with that question. A lot of people have asked me over the years uh, uh, but I think enough water under the bridge now where I can open up and, and say. Uh, unfortunately, in the early 80s, I had to shoot a, an offender in Springvale. Uh, back in those days, uh, I was left-handed. They wouldn't give us left-handed holsters. So my gun was in the right side. Uh, I shot with my left side. So the offender stabbed my partner and was coming at me with a knife. As I withdrew the gun, I put two shots into the ground and the next four shots into him. Unfortunately, uh, I didn't hit body mass. It was just all below the hip. He kept coming with the knife, so I had to lash out and I hit him. Uh, But to punch somebody back in those days, it wasn't called a punch. It was called a snap. So subsequently, uh, I was at the committals court in Paran and Sergeant Jack Lidgerwood was the prosecutor, and he was trying to push me to say, what did you do next? What did you do next after you shot him? What did you do next? And I didn't want to say I punched him or I hit him or I sold him. And I just said, so I snapped him. And that was it. That afternoon, Jack Lidgerwood said, welcome to the menagerie. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, at Springvale, we have a turtle, a skunk, a yabby, and now we have a snapper. That's a fantastic story. It sounds like you had a pretty tough start, Snapper. Your folks divorced, you were expelled from school at 15, and you even did time a little bit in a, in a boy's home. So tell me, what did joining VicPol as a 16-year-old cadet, what did that actually give you? Friendship in the beginning, because I didn't want to join the police force. So I, I was really forced to do it. Uh, my goal was to get into the army as a, as a carpenter. But my mother, knowing how the Second World War affected my father, just refused to sign the papers. So I finished up in the police force. I had no expectations when I went in, uh, except that at the police academy, they taught us, uh, as Batfink says, we have wings like steel. Uh, 
And when I graduated, I thought that was it, that we were respected and trusted people in the community and people would listen to what we had. Well, after three months, I learnt that. It was a very violent town in Frankston when I went there as a trainee and uh, I learnt very quickly uh, that it's not what we were taught at the academy. When I read your career, it reads extraordinarily. I mean, it reads like a boy's own adventure. Do you think that you attracted trouble or do you think it likes you? Good question. I grew up one of seven boys in Dandenong. I was the middle boy. My mother and father separated when I was 15 and the three older boys went off on their own. The three younger boys went to live with mum. So all of a sudden dad went from seven to none. I never got on with the older ones because I was too young and I never got on with the younger ones because I was too old. So what I insisted on doing was leaving mum, running away and going to dad. So really I was raised by dad and kept getting dragged back by the police and in the end got put in a home. Eventually I was permitted to stay at dad's and my dad sent me up to Jamison to live with his sister as a 15-year-old to get me away from the city because I was certainly heading down the wrong path. It sounds like, given the circumstances, you were probably pretty lucky to find the job. I credit the lady who I worked for up here in Jamison as a 15-year-old. She signed the papers without me knowing. My youngest brother is uh, Barry, is what you we used to call retarded. I don't know what the term is now. And we're at the hotel one day and the drunken licensee came over and hit Barry because he dropped some twisties on the on the floor. I know this sounds ridiculous. So when he hit my brother, I instinctively pushed him and because of he, he was drunk, not because of the force, he fell over. Well, all the kids there looked at me and thought, you have just knocked out the licensee. So I was the king of the kids for about a minute until the local policeman came in, also intoxicated. He grabbed me by the hair, took me outside and hit me and broke my nose. Took me over to the police station and again, it was quite vicious and he got caught by my auntie. So to actually go from that to being a member of the police force. It was quite a tricky transition. And I often think about how did it happen? I can't put my finger on it. In uniform, Snapper, you were hospitalised like virtually three times in three months. What a baptism of fire. It it certainly was. Um, I came out really wanting to make a difference and and look at the good side of humanity, etc. The first one, you know, we just went to a domestic violence and and the guy turned on us and and unfortunately the lady turned on us and um, I finished up in the casualty ward at Frankston Hospital and I said, well, that, that doesn't really work. And then the second time and then the third time and I was lying there waiting to be stitched up and I thought, there is no shield of steel. I have to rethink the way uh, I I look at things. So from that point on, I lost a lot of faith. I lost trust. And and unless I could really get your respect, uh, it was difficult for me to link in with the community from then on. Hmm. 
You endured also a number of threats on your family when you were working in the job. What happened when you were in Springvale? I know you shot and wounded a guy and you were forced to do security on him in hospital. What was that like? It was the beginning of perhaps the end. Uh, this this fellow was trying to murder a woman in, in her home. Uh, we intervened. My partner got stabbed. And when I was doing security on him, he was hell-bent on finding out who shot him and he was going to kill him and rape his wife. And, and I was actually quite concerned. And subsequent to that, after he got out on bail, he tried to break into my home in Mulgrove, and my wife was home at the time. Very, very frightening times. But the thing was, uh, he disappeared, and he used to drive a very distinctive car, and he just went off the grid. And every time I saw one of these cars, I looked over my shoulder thinking, that's him, this is it. And that, happened, that went on for six years. And the internal investigations people suspected that I might have done some harm to him because of the threats. And, and that was a, a difficult thing to come to terms with because my own organisation were really looking at me for perhaps murdering someone, which wasn't good. Anyway, after about six years, I was contacted. They found his body uh, and the body of a woman he'd kidnapped from a nightclub in Peron. Uh, found them in a car with plenty of evidence to say that he kidnapped her and killed her and then committed suicide. So it was a big relief when they found him. Um, No thanks or no sorries or anything like that. Let's just move on. What an extraordinary story and and what a huge weight to carry for six years. Yes, even to this day, 40 years on, when I see one of those vehicles, I get a flashback and think that this man was trying to harm my family. It's quite daunting. Snapper, was it a, a natural fit for you to become a detective? I think so. When After joining and accepting I was in, I originally wanted to go to traffic because I love motorcycles. It wasn't long that I was in the job, I realised I loved to be a crook catcher, uh, particularly property crime, uh, um, burglaries and uh, armed robberies and things like that. That was my forte. And when I was a constable at Springvale, I met my first mentor, uh, a detective, senior detective at Springvale CIB, that I think saw potential in my ability as a cook catcher and took me under the wing. Uh, Lindsay Cummins was his name. And it's funny, I finished up outranking him by a number of ranks, but still had more respect and, and trust for Lindsay for what he taught me through the years. So... I once a detective, always a detective. What makes a good detective? You you have to be thorough. Uh, the best detective I ever met uh, was a policewoman at Dandenong CIB. I, I think it was Tracy Latchford, I think was her name. And I used to model myself on, on her ability to be extremely thorough. No tunnel vision. And when she hit a closed door, she opened up another one worked really, really hard. And I thought, well, that's what a detective does. The harder you work, the more doors you open, the better result you'll get. What was it like, Snapper, to be in the major crime squad? Well, it it cost me a marriage. There's no doubt about that. I, at the time, uh, was a single parent. I got my son and daughter when they were 
three and four, respectively. Uh, my first day at the Major Crime Squad was the day Rod McDonald and Kappa shot Mad Max over in Wallum. So that was my baptism of fire. And it didn't stop there because the 1986s was an incredible year. Started off with Mad Max shootings. We had the Wall Street killings. We had the uh, Russell Street bombing. And I was nearly a victim of that. I was very lucky to, to miss that. Then we had the Turkish consulate bomb. Uh, and I was a target of that terrorist group there. Now, in between all this, my first child was born in August in 1986. I was never home. It was a difficult time, very violent time, the beginning of the underworld murders. Uh, we were a very dedicated team, uh, and uh, it was during that time where my transition from being a detective to an officer happened. Why did the majors have such an infamous reputation? You hear about them now, and they certainly did have an infamous reputation. Was it deserved? Look, the reputation was deserved in some areas because there was some definitely circumstances that you would label as corrupt, and I don't shy away from that. Uh, but on the whole... Uh, the, the, the guys and girls that work there, I take my hat off. I, ha I have a lot of respect because what they sacrificed through their lives for, for the community. I did that interview on 3OW with John Hindle and Brett McLeod and one of the questions they asked me was, uh, you're cowboys, you go through the doors with your sledgehammer. And I said, well, John and Brett, I'd love to change spots with you any time. I have a three and a four year old child in bed. I have to get out, go and kid up and go to a house where the people in there want to probably harm me. I don't want to go through that door first, but sometimes I have to. That's what we had to do back then. They weren't prepared to trade places with us. Um, so look, it was a really, really difficult time. We did have a, a, an infamous name because we were always asked to do the hard miles. Why do you think they were disbanded? I actually had this conversation with one of the officers that was responsible for disbanding it and there was a corrupt element in there and they couldn't uncover that or expose that corrupt element. So the way it was explained to me, well, disband the entire squad, clean it out and start again. Something that often occurs, doesn't it? Drug squads suffered the same sort of thing. You worked on the Russell Street and the Turkish consulate bombing snapper, a very significant time for Victoria Police, as you've already mentioned. Were they a watershed for police and, and certainly how crims were perceived? How do you recall those investigations now in that era of policing? It was remarkable. Uh, first, the Russell Street bombing and... We had an excellent arson squad back in those days and working with those guys taught me a lot because my expertise wasn't arson and, and it's a totally new skill set. The stolen car squad, Steve Quincy and others like that, brought a whole new dimension to, to the investigation. It wasn't until after the Turkish consulate bombing, we were at the early headquarters 
that was our command post, and ASIO came in to brief us on what to look for and what to expect. And the opening line was, don't look for a criminal here. You're not looking for a criminal. You're looking for a terrorist. And, of course, I'm thinking, well, what's the difference? But there is a hell of a difference. And, and moving on to the Turkish consulate bombing inspired me to move across to the intelligence side of policing. And I shifted to uh, counterterrorism. What was that like for you? What did you learn in counterterrorism that you didn't learn in the other squads? Things can be very, very complex in both politics and policing. Uh, in the terrorism side of things, you have to look globally, whereas in the major crime squad, we were looking domestically and always had tunnel vision. Working on the Turkish consulate bomb, for example, the offender we arrested was up in Sydney and they had international links. He was about to hop on a plane to Beirut when we arrested him. Working side by side with ASIO and uh, the secrecy and the intelligence that was coming out just was really, really remarkable. So it was, it was totally different to, to criminal investigation. You have got a remarkable career where you've actually stood up and really made a name for yourself for not taking a backward step. You uncovered corruption at one stage. It's something very few members want to talk about, let alone discuss. But of course, in those days, it did exist in the job. How did it impact on you being a whistleblower? Well, I was never a whistleblower because I actually never officially exposed it. What what happened, it was interesting because whistleblowers weren't well respected but whenever we went through a door and the crook knew we were coming that said to me my my life and my my troops lives are in danger so i acted on that regard as opposed to uh, whistleblowing so i called them out privately told them what evidence i had and said time to leave uh, on the first instance the individual pulled out a, a five-shot thirty-eight, cocked it and put it in my mouth and said, so what are you going to do about it? Now, I won't go into the details to what happened after that, but it was a really, really frightening time because you think this is what you're really up against. The second time, similar circumstances, but it was a senior person. He resigned as a result of the information that I said I had, but he turned up one time at... I was the senior sergeant at Ringwood. I'd never met this guy, only a phone call. He came to the counter at the Ringwood police station and he said, hi, Wayne, how are you going? How's Annie and the kids, Robert and Erica? Are you still living in Mulgrave in Hombi Boulevard? Just thought I'd touch base and let you know that we're still thinking of you. See you. And that really, really put the fear of bejesus up. Because they, they, that's when they're starting to target my family. So of the four people in my career, well, we had lots of threats, but four of them I took very, very seriously. One was from a terrorist. One was from, uh, two of them were for police officers, serving police officers. But it was, it was only that, this is what I'm saying about the corruption, very, very, very small element of, of the job. I thought I'd be smart and thought I could uh, weed it out. I didn't. 
Uh, yeah, so I was unsuccessful and it cost me. How on earth do you deal with that? Because you join the job to work on the crims who are out there. You know, they're not inside. They're not your colleagues. Obviously, it's not every colleague. But that must be mind-blowing to realise that there's members, there were members in the job that were prepared to go to those lengths. Well, it didn't surprise me. We, we saw it. We were dealing with some pretty hard, hard people. And, and you, you actually have to mirror that behaviour sometimes. It, it wasn't pleasant, and I'm not, not big noting, but I used to hate to see my troops going to those situations. And, and all my briefings were, guys, we don't start the fight. We never start the fight, but we always finish it. You're going home to your wife and kids tonight. And that, that was my ethos. And, and uh, when the gun was put in my head, I, I thought... I'm going to have to do something about it. So there was a very uh, an officer I knew. I trusted him uh, very much, and I went in confidence and spoke to him. He said, "All right." He said, "Okay, we'll get, take this to the chief commissioner." Took it to the chief commissioner, and to this day, uh, nothing was ever done. I never heard another. So. Back in those days, we were on the 11th floor. Um, command themselves were having their own dizzy battle, looking after each other's backs and taping one another, and they really weren't interested in what was happening under the clouds, we used to say. And we'd gone on with our job, and they got on with theirs. Snapper, why... At one stage, you decided to walk with Christine Nixon in the first uh, Gay Pride March. Now, I know my father's got very specific, I suppose, criticism of why she did that. Obviously, it's a very different world now. Why did you do that? Very good question. Uh, That's another thing that caused me grief. Look, um, Christine Nixon at one stage wanted to close down detective training school because of the culture. And... I was the officer in charge here at the time and and I personally asked, can you give me the opportunity to do a review and perhaps I can change this culture? Uh, I think it was about a six-month review I did and one of the outcomes was that I didn't believe the senior officers walked the talk. They were pretty quick to say, we look after our Indigenous people, we look after our women, we look after um, our gay and lesbians and things like that. But behind the scenes, you're going, no, this is... And I saw that. I saw it so much. And then I was approached by Jill Wood, who was an inspector. And Jill said, all right, Snapper. I said, I've read your report. Now's the time to stand up and walk the talk. And I was horrified because I was now being challenged with the same behaviour um, that I was saying needed to be changed to change the situation. I sat down with my family. My girlfriend at the time said, don't you dare. My daughter, she said, I can't see, what's the problem? Just no issue. Anyway, it caused me a a, a fair bit of heartache. On the day, my, my girlfriend refused to come along. So... Just so I didn't put all my eggs in one basket, there was a director of media at the time, I can't think of her name, and I said, look, can you do me a favour? At the end of the march, can you come up and give me a big hug? Just so all the people at the other end can say, he's got a girlfriend. Anyway, it was all good, and I was the 
first one behind Christine marching, and just to look at all of the people along the side, particularly the, the transsexual people who were really glad to see the police marching, I must, I must say. But anyway, I got to the end and uh, uh, out comes the media lady and gave me a cuddle and I looked over and showed and here's my girlfriend and my daughter standing there. So let's, let's just say finish the day not on a good note. Um, <laughs> I, I got in a bit of trouble that day. Steph, you've had an extraordinary career. Look, there's a lot to discuss in your uh, extraordinary career and we'll certainly continue in interview number two. So thank you very much for sitting with me today on the Crime Couch Snapper. Thanks, Rochelle. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Couch. 